Well, there's been another day of devastation in Gaza, with more than 100 Palestinians dead after Israeli soldiers opened fire on an aid convoy delivering food. The Israeli government and the IDF have said that people were crushed to death by trucks and the stampeding crowd. The IDF says it only fired warning shots in an effort to disperse the crowd. But Palestinian ambassador to the UN, Riyad Mansour, says it's clear the soldiers were shooting at civilians. According to the information that we have, dozens of them have bullets in their heads. It's not like, you know, firing in the sky to restrain people if there was uh, confusions and chaos. It was intentionally targeting and killing. This outrageous, you know, uh, massacre is a testimony to the fact that as long as the Security Council is paralyzed and vetoes casted, then it is costing the Palestinian people their lives. Dr. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also a former senior advisor on Arab-Israeli peace negotiations with the U.S. State Department. A warm welcome to you. Thanks for having me, Annie. From what you've seen and all of the news coverage since this event, how much responsibility should the IDF bear for these deaths? Given the fact that um, there are conflicting accounts of what actually transpired, it's not clear to me. According to the Israelis, this happened in two phases. Um, but I think it's a direct result of the fact that you have an acute humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza. You have the Israelis continuing to prosecute uh, a war against Hamas with neither side showing any signs of any urgency whatsoever. And while it's critical to focus on the day-to-day -day here, the more problematic reality is that Israel and Hamas basically dictate the tempo, the character, the escalation and de-escalation of this conflict. And uh, the international community, the United States, would-be mediators, have consistently overestimated their capacity to fundamentally change the trajectory of this conflict. And I, I, I have absolutely no doubt that right now, neither the Netanyahu government nor the senior Hamas leadership, neither of those two parties are in a hurry to end this. And frankly, today's uh, events probably on Hamas's side reinforce the absence of urgency because the international pressure on Israel is mounting. This, is, this event today is only going to exacerbate that pressure, which I think is part of Hamas's calculation. Because the main, the main game here is, forget the interim deal on hostages. What Hamas wants eventually is to survive this and to be able to continue to influence developments in Gaza. And that requires trading time and the asset of tunnels. And it seems to me that they're in the process of succeeding. International pressure is growing. At what point the Israelis believe that it's pressure they can't resist is unclear. Just to clarify, you, you said that uh, Hamas's calculations, uh, was that connected to this shooting? Because I want to be really clear here, Mohammed Saleh, the acting director of Al-Hada Hospital, treated 161 casualties. Most of them appeared to have been shot. What are you suggesting that Hamas's role in this might have been? 
I don't think Hamas had a role. In fact, over the last several weeks, Hamas has, has escorted aid shipments. Uh, and in one incident two weeks ago, the Israelis shot and killed a number of Hamas officials who were shepherding this aid convoy. I'm not suggesting that Hamas had any role in this. What I'm suggesting is the impact of this, the large numbers of casualties to gunfire, is simply going to be another pressure point uh, on the government of Israel. And I think that clearly benefits Yahya Sinwar and has from the beginning. So while the Israelis are responsible, the fact is that you and I wouldn't even be having this conversation if Hamas hadn't launched their terror surge of October 7. We forget sometimes that there are two parties to this conflict. I must ask then, if we're talking about causality, who is responsible for this desperate hunger that the Palestinians are suffering? I mean, isn't Israel ultimately to blame for creating that panic that ensued over this food delivery? I think the Israelis, in an effort to prosecute a war in a densely populated Gaza, um, where Hamas willfully embeds its military assets in and around and below ground, is in a situation where you cannot prosecute such a war without inflicting grievous harm on the local population. And the Israelis have an asymmetry of power right now. Nonetheless, I, I come back to the fundamental problem. There's got to be an agreement in order to get both Israel and Hamas to de-escalate. This will not end in terms of surging humanitarian assistance into Gaza unless you can create reliable and predictable corridors for delivery. The question, therefore, is who is most appropriate for delivering aid in these corridors? Of course, the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, traditionally oversaw aid to Gaza. Uh, it's had a lot of its funding halted after claims in January from Israel that it was employing Hamas militants. Some of that funding was halted uh, from our own Australian government. Regardless of who is deemed responsible for this incident, do the deaths at least show that UNRWA really is the agency that needs to be in control of delivering humanitarian assistance and not the Israeli military? Well, I think that's right. And the Israelis hired private contractors to distribute this aid. This was not a UN convoy. This was not UN goods. But, you know, we're ignoring the reality on the ground. Yes, it would be nice if UNRWA was a completely functional organization. And out of the 13,000 of its employees in Gaza, you've got only 3,000 working. It would be nice if 12 countries hadn't suspended their assistance, including my own government, on the basis of what the Israelis claim, and their claims have been vetted to some degree with some credibility. Yeah, all of that would be great, but it's not the reality that exists on the ground right now. Would it have made a and difference the, if, if UNRWA problem. was that's delivering this side? I'm saying uh, UNRWA, UNRWA is, is no longer funded by the United States. So UNRWA cannot be, even though it remains the most uh, effective organization to distribute aid, it won't be able to unless somebody steps up and funds it. The Arab, the Arab states are responsible for 2 to 4% of UNRWA's budget. That's it. All I'm suggesting is, inexorably, when we look at this conflict, the default position is, how do we stop it? What, what pressure points do external parties have on the two major combatants? And what I'm trying to suggest is that 
in an existential conflict in which both parties are trying to inflict grievous harm on the other. It's the two parties that control the ebb and flow and the trajectory of the conflict. This is not the UN. It is not the United States. It is not the EU. The Middle East is literally littered with the remains of great powers, external powers who believe wrongly they can impose their will on smaller ones. We're six months into this war. Six months on March 7th will be the sixth month of this war. And yet, despite persuasion, protestation, UN Security Council resolutions, UN General Assembly resolutions, it continues. Why does it continue? Is it because the US continues to fund Israel's war effort and support it publicly? Well, there you go again, defaulting to the, um, you know the history of the US-Israeli relationship. You can intuit Joe Biden's deep emotional bond with the security of Israel, the idea of Israel, the people of Israel, obviously not with the most extremist right-wing government in the history of the state. You're not going to get an American president to turn around having invested himself in Israel's war aims. He needs Netanyahu's assent to cut this deal with Hamas. If there is no deal by Ramadan, March 10th or after, no other power in the international system today has the capacity to de-escalate this conflict. If the United States shut off military aid to Israel tomorrow, which is highly unlikely. The Israelis would still persist. Doesn't history show us that uh, tensions in this part of the Middle East only uh, cease once a, a major global power uh, withdraws support or intervenes more directly? I mean, haven't we learned yeah, that I would throughout? Say, I, would give, I would provide a resounding no to that. The last American president to exert real pressure on Israel was Dwight D. Eisenhower in 1956. Eisenhower sanctioned, threatened to sanction the Israelis if they didn't withdraw, and they withdrew. I mean, I worked for a half a dozen administrations, Jimmy Carter to uh, Bush 43. It's the rare exception of an American president who's prepared to go even a quarter of the way that you've suggested. We're infantilizing the parties by assuming that some external deus ex machina is going to swoop down and make this all better. It's not going to happen. So, so how does it end, do you think? It, it ends when there, is, there has been a sufficient amount of pain inflicted on one or more of the parties, and, and this is where the negotiation comes in, there's a degree of gain for each of them, which creates urgency. I participated in every negotiation since the late 80s. I'm a part of the United States with Syria, Lebanon, Palestinians, Jordan. It's when pain and gain are married together. And right now, neither the Netanyahu government nor the senior leadership of Hamas, the architects of the October 7 terror surge. And I'll, you know, let's remind ourselves again, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation had Hamas, had Hamas not, not launched an attack which was indiscriminate, willful, barbarous, and sadistic. We wouldn't be having this conversation. And I'm not suggesting that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict began on October 7. But what happened on October 7 and the Israeli response 
has created a new, a new potential tran transforming event in this conflict. And it will end or it will subside when each party believes it is in their interests to make it subside. That moment does seem like it's still far off. Uh, Dr. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a former senior advisor on Arab-Israeli peace negotiations with the US State Department. Very nice to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Andy, thank you. Take care. Getting in touch with ABC RN is easy. Join the conversation live using the ABC Listen app's call and text features.